Hey, this is Mark A. Altman from Inglorious Trexperts in the 430 movie. And if you're a James Bond fan, you want to pick up my new book, Nobody Does It Better, The Complete Uncensored Oral History of James Bond and Spy Mania. It's a hefty tome, and it's available now wherever you purchase books, audiobooks, and digital. Check it out, and I will renew your license to kill personally. Hey, this is Mark Altman. I'm here with your 430 Movie hosts. Steve Melching. Darren Dockerman. Ashley Miller. And if you enjoy listening to the 430 Movie, you'll love watching us on Electric Now. Electric Now is available on Stir, Zumo, and Distro TV apps and coming soon to the Electric Now app. So check us out, and it doesn't have to be 430. Any time of the day, we'll be there. Need to make a call? Look for a police call box. That's where you'll find Two on Who, the new Doctor Who podcast from Electric Surge. Two on Who is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome back to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Uh, I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me as always is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How you doing today, Josh? I am doing good. How about you, Steve? Fantastic. And we have a great <laughs> epic, our most epic guest-wise show we've had uh, in celebration of both a new book that just got released and the upcoming James Bond film. We are doing a two-part episode on Unmade James Bond. And we have three guests, and I'll actually let you guys introduce yourselves so that the audience can remember what your voices sound like. Let's start with you, Mr. Fred. Hi, I'm Fred Decker. I'm a writer, director, producer, and uh, I wish I were uh, a professional James Bond fan because I'd be really rich. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Henry McComas. I'm a filmmaker, producer of Wolfman's Gottenards and uh, the Boy Band Con, and I've been an avid James Bond film since I discovered the Dr. No VHS at age six years and old. And it's your birthday. Happy birthday. Were Thanks, you a Pink man. Panther fan as well? Because they had, they had those Pink Panther <laughs> cartoons at the beginning. Pretty much. On the VHS, <laughs> yeah. the whole James Bond, which was so weird. Uh, and that is the voice of? I'm Mark A. Altman. Um, I am the uh, author of the new James Bond book, Nobody Does It Better. Uh, oral history of James Bond from myself and Ed Gross uh, that just came out from Tor uh, Books and, and uh, also executive producer of uh, the Electric Surge Podcast Network with Dean <laughs> Devlin and uh, um, Pandora on the CW and a bunch of other stuff. But I'm here as a Bond fan. And before <laughs> we start, I have to say, oh, and also the host of Inglorious Trexperts in the fourth third movie. Let's you know plug, yeah, yeah. plug the shows, right? So, uh, but more importantly, congratulations to you Sonic the Hedgehog, oh, huge. <laughs> I mean, you know, you guys are so modest. I mean, you know, he never talks about his Dune documentary, which is one of the great documentaries about a movie of all time. And then you, and he has another project coming up, which he doesn't talk about, but I can't give away. But you, you just had this huge success, and you're so modest still. Thank you. <laughs> it's great. I'm glad he brought this up because actually I'm in here 
uh, in defense of Super Mario Brothers and the last three I podcasts. Think I even name-checked you, you on our. Uh, <laughs> Henry made me rewatch that movie, unrelated to the podcast, because he loves it so. Everybody much. writes about Sonic the Hedgehog. This is finally this video game movie that's worth seeing that actually made money. I mean, like you broke <laughs> the curse and taken from a guy who made awful video game movies. I mean, God, I was involved, you know, with the freaking House of the Dead, and Dead or Alive. So I love I, Dead or Alive. Uh, I'm sorry. Okay, no, that's okay. <laughs> I, I like look. It. I mean, you know, it is what it is. But uh, <laughs> thank it, you. Sir. And so, it was yeah. a good flick. We want to tell you that. For, oh. yeah. well, it's yeah. not like that. It's like oh, the God. best Jim Carrey performance in like a decade. It, that I will. Mm. I, and the so best in theater marketing me, materials. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great standees. Great four sheets. You know, best Midwest a, representation of raccoons a, uh, since outdoors. <laughs> they don't really make novelizations yes. of movies anymore. Who wrote it? Uh, I just gave Steve a copy. The oh, author's name somewhere on there. Yeah. Um, Alan Dean Foster. <laughs> <laughs> but segueing to this Very episode, uh, maybe even a part of an explanation of why we have this array of guests was in part um, at the Beyond Fest screening of Henry's documentary, Wolfman's Got Nards, which is about the movie Fred Made, right. The Monster Squad. Uh, at the after party, I got to witness you guys just nerd out hard in a big debate about James Bond. And I always think it's interesting. It's like, I feel like it's people always say, oh, John Carpenter doesn't like doing interviews. That's not true. He doesn't like doing interviews about his movies. If you just ask him about an old Western, he'll just talk right. forever. Right, you're talking about real Bravo. Yeah. Howard Hogg. Three hours, and I always yeah. think it's interesting people that you associate with a certain genre, hearing them talk about the movies that they love, which aren't even necessarily in the genre you associate with them. Anyway, so that's why I wanted to have you guys on. Uh, I didn't know Fred was such a James Bond fan. Mark clearly knew he was, since you are in Mark's <laughs> yeah, yeah. book quite yeah, a that's bit. That's right, that's right. How did that even come up? Because, I mean, obviously I'd interviewed you for the Star Trek book, but how did I find out that you were such, oh, a huge Bond fan? I probably mentioned it when we were talking about Star Trek. Yeah, probably, because uh, I knew when we were doing the Bond, we were the first people I talked to for the book. Yeah. And, you know, Fred has such great insights into, you know, why he loves certain things and not. I mean, you know, it's for everyone has an opinion, right? But it's finding the people who have opinions that they can back up with some kind of critical rigor. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's the great thing about you know Fred is that you know he had a lot of opinions about the Bond movies, but there was you know something substantive about his opinions. But I like it. I don't like yeah. it. I like the pussy sucks. You know. Mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> well, and Mark, tell us a little bit about the book. Well, as long as we're talking, it's the latest oral history uh, from uh, Ed and I, and. Uh, you know, it came. It recently came out, uh, and we're just uh, we're just thrilled. The reviews have been amazing, and it covers the entire Bond oeuvre through uh, basically through Spectre. I mean, we don't really have anything on No Time to Die, um, but uh, an oral history is like being at a dinner party with five hundred uh, people who worked on the movie, <laughs> yeah. your closest friend, and just they talk, and as they get drunker, they give you more and more good juicy stuff. <laughs> so um, it's the entire you know Bond story. I mean, the oral history format has been so fascinating to me ever since I read the oral history of Sarah Alive. I was going to say, I, and, that's why I was excited when I heard that this was an oral history because that's one of my favorite like non-fiction books of the past 20 I want, years was I want Live my from MTV New York. was a big influence on us when I read that. That inspired me to do the Star Trek book. And, uh, you know, it was, it was such a fun way to tell a story. And I think it captures the Rashomon a- aspect of making movies because, you know, generally if you are the voice of God as the narrator, you sort of have to come down on which story is true if three people are... T- but in an oral history, you can let each person tell their own story, mm-hmm. and it's the old Robert Evans quote. You know, it's like you know, three people can have two totally different stories, but no one is lying. You know, mm-hmm. and um, 
well, except not, for Robert Evans, right? And uh, not to jump ahead because we'll we'll get there in our own due time. But like it was interesting reading the sections about our topic today, which is Thunderball and its many attempted and made remakes, Warhead and so on, and just seeing all the different people weigh in on it and who felt it was whose fault. And I I, I guess I like it better than just reading someone's own take on it to get all these different voices. Well, the incredible story, I think, about Thunderball more than anything is, you know, uh, in a nutshell, the whole idea that, you know, Ian Fleming collaborated with Kevin McClory and and, and came up with a plot for what ended up being the Thunderball book, but he didn't attribute it to him. There was this famous lawsuit. But what's amazing is that in the settlement and the deal ultimately that McClory made with Broccoli and Saltzman uh, to become a producer, you know, begrudgingly on their part on Thunderball, is that they allowed him the remake rights in 10 years. Mm-hmm. So it tells you that Broccoli and Saltzman thought there's no way that the Bond yeah. franchise would be viable in 10 years. <laughs> and that, to me, is the thing that I think is the craziest of everything to deal with the whole McClory of it all. Oops. It I mean, shows the foresight of McClory. I mean, this is a guy that was just a, f- a fan of underwater stuff. Remember- he was like, one day I'm going to make a movie. And then he reads this book, gets a hold of Ian Fleming, and pushes his narrative to eventually make Thunderball a couple times. Remember something else, though. The early Bonds, which I, I maintain are, are you know some of the best, were made every year from 1963 until uh, there was a break between... Uh, Thunderballing only twice of mm-hmm. two years, and now it takes you know seven years between Bond films. It's a huge pet peeve of mine because you look at some of the greatest Bond movies of all time, Doctor No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger. They're made like clockwork every year. You know now it's like they need five years to do mm-hmm. a, a Bond movie, and you know they're not even close in terms of quality. And it's just like, and now you know that the next one is going to happen. So why are you aren't developing multiple scripts and, mm-hmm. you know, planning for the future and at least doing them every two years? Well, they need three years to convince Daniel and, Craig. Uh, <laughs> we were talking about this on our Unmade Friday the 13th episode. I mean, not to compare Bond and Jason, but the same thing. In the 80s, they made a Jason movie every single year except one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the end of the decade, Paramount was just like, well, who cares about this property anymore? And gave it to New Line. Yeah. Uh, and now they're just, they constantly are overthinking what a Friday the 13th but movie should be. And do, it's like, you know what the fans want. Just do it. If you can do Jason in space, you can do Jason versus Bond. <laughs> My question is who would win? By the way, I, I would think watch. Can I, be, yeah. can I be a nerd? Uh, Friday 6, which I think is the best, directed by Tommy McLaughlin, actually has a James Bond joke at the beginning of the oh, movie. that's true. Oh, it's, what is it? It's the bu- it's gun barrel. It's him in the, oh. the They do the gun barrel with Jason. And instead and of the gun, machete. he slashes his machete and blood drips <laughs> yeah, down the screen. Totally sets up the vibe of um, movie. Well, to kick yeah. things off, maybe just so I guess the audience has some idea of our sensibilities, let's maybe go around the table, start with Fred. Just talk about your introduction and relationship to Bond growing up and uh, favorite Bond. Mm, favorite film or favorite actor? I'd say actor and film if you can shoot them uh, off it, it, quickly. They're, they're, it's a Sean Connery movie called You Only Live Twice and it was um, and I was probably I think it may have been a re-release but I was you know seven eight years old Um Actually, I think it came came out the year uh, the year it came out. I was seven years old. I may have seen it in its original run, but you know, coming from seeing you know the No Mobile and and 101 Dalmatians and those were kids <laughs> movies, and this was a grown up movie, and it blew my mind. Uh, it was my first kind of conscious acknowledgement of what a movie star was. I watched this guy and said, I want to be that guy, because he was so charismatic and so cool and and. And the world that Ken Adam 
and and all everybody, John Barry and and uh, Broccoli and Saltzman, the world they created was not the world we live in. It was its own world, and and when I then fell in love with that movie and then wanted to uh, see the previous ones, which were constantly being re-released in uh, double bills, um, I realized that that world existed in other movies, and those are the only movies that that world exists in. And uh, I'd, I'd have to say it's my favorite. He's my favorite fictional character, and that's my favorite world to visit in the movies. So uh, I, you know, I was hooked from that from then on, and it's still my favorite of the of the series. I don't know that it's a great movie. I, I've uh, in the book Mark and I talked about. I think there's five great Bond movies. I don't think Only Twice is one of those five, but it is my favorite. Henry, uh, who's your favorite Bond? Connery. Connery. Um, I was a kid, my mom brings in a VHS and she sits me down and it's like, we're going to have the talk. <laughs> She's like, Henry, I want you to know a few things. You should never treat women the way this man treats women. And there's a lot of things in these movies that I don't agree with, but I just love Sean Connery so much. <laughs> and I think you're really going to like him. That's a good them. mom right there. <laughs> and I put it in and it was Dr. No. Then I got to Thunderball and my mind was blown. And uh, that year in grade school, I remember my brother had a plexiglass gerbil cage uh, and I took it, I took the camcorder, I made a raft around it and I put the camera and lens down and made a rope rigging system and pulled it across the lakes just to try and do underwater cinematography Mm -hmm. like in uh, Thunderball and I was hooked from then on. No wonder you have empathy for Kevin McClory. (laughs) (laughs) Did you see them sequentially? I did, yeah. Mark? I I guess it should be a a trigger warning on the James Bond movies because he speaks ill of the Beatles, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's very, that really gets me every time he insults the Beatles, says you should wear earmuffs. Um, But I will will say, um, you know, the first Bond movie I ever saw at a theater was The Man with the Golden Gun. It's amazing I ever went to see another one. But at the time, it really captivated me. I mean, this incredible, the globetrotting, the, 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 the excitement, um, and uh, of course, then the next one was Spy Love Me, which made me a fan for life. But, uh, you know, as much as I sit here and extol, you know, Roger Moore, um, like these guys, Sean Connery is my, my favorite Bond. But which isn't to say I don't like the others. I, I will defend Roger Moore to the death. I still think Sean Connery is the greatest Bond. I love Daniel Craig. I still think Sean Connery is the greatest Bond. You know, there's not a bad Bond other than Barry Nelson. You know, <laughs> I mean, even Timothy Dalton, who's probably my least favorite Bond, I still find credible in the role. Um, my favorite movie, probably from Russia with Love. Just, you know, it's before Bond got silly. Um, you know, it's a straight up espionage thriller, but it still has some really cool stuff and some great globetrotting. But it depends what day you ask me. Could be Goldfinger. Could be Casino Royale. You know, the the the, uh, the, new, one. the new one, not the uh, <laughs> not the CBS Climax <laughs> Mystery Theater. Uh, not a fan of that, are you? Not really. <laughs> For me, general generationally, I would say I was the Pierce Brosnan formative years and i loved golden Millennials eye but, is so predictable uh, but uh, i think i'm technically gen x but like by one year are you yeah. really i you think are. so yeah. um, i'm gen x how is that possible because uh, <laughs> generations don't make any sense in the modern age <laughs> the way they spread out but uh other than golden I, I immediately didn't like any of the brazen ones but for me it was that uh my dad liked hunting uh, I did not like hunting, but he wanted me to go hunting with him. And the deal we made was that I could bring a bunch of VHS tapes 
And we didn't really own that many, but my uncle Dan had every single James Bond movie on VHS mm. up until that point. And I'd seen enough of them on TV that I, you know, I was like, yeah, I like James Bond. And so I basically just took all of them on this one boring hunting trip <laughs> in North Dakota. Uh, I just like burnt through all of them. And I was definitely a Roger Moore kid because I was a kid and Roger Moore was in the silliest ones. And I loved Jaws and he was in two of them. I loved Moonraker, which is one of the dumbest of the James Bond movies. <laughs> but that's also why I feel my opinion is very informed that John Connery is the best Bond because he was not my favorite growing up. And generally it's the Bond you grew up with. Yes, exactly. So I feel like I, just watching them over and over again, I'm like, no, he's the best. And everyone was kind of doing a riff, whether they were zigging or zagging, depending on how many Bonds later sure. they came. He was the Bond. Uh, and I think Goldfinger is my favorite because that was the one I just really locked into because I loved the fact that he spent so much time with the villain. Because there's so many movies, you know, where you just cut to the villain doing evil stuff and they're just like hanging out and the villain's just like constantly explaining his plan and he's <laughs> so confident that Sean Connery can't stop him. It was this just is fun. like a bromance. They're playing <laughs> yeah. together. Uh, how my, about you, Steve? My, I just want to say one thing. Oh. My favorite quote about um, the Bond movies, I think is uh, about Pierce in particular in the, in the book, and I forget who says it, it may have even been you, mm. it says, Pierce Brosnan is the best Bond to never have a good script. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. that, that Pierce, there's nothing wrong with Pierce. Pierce is great. He's, he's a synthesis of Connery and Moore, but he never had a good script. Goldeneye, obviously, is the best of his films, but um, he was really let down by the material time and time again. But Goldeneye, Goldeneye had like one of the best video games ever. So I <laughs> yeah, will I don't say know if that the movie can get credit. So I will say, no, no, that. And, and that brought a whole new generation yeah. to Bond. Yeah. I mean, Slapper talks only. about it in the book. Uh, for um, you know, a whole new generation when they yeah. thought Bond was dead, and it was your father's jam, and that like mm-hmm. kids did, that the Nintendo game yeah. just opened up the world of Bond to a whole new generation. Plus, it was tube television, and we had four players, and you had to stare at this tiny cube like. Hunting each other. Um, well, mine was, I mean, the first Bond movie I saw is my favorite, and it's The Spy Who Loved Me. I, I, I saw it a couple of times on network television, and then I'll never forget. I the watched the ABC Sunday Night Movie. Yes. And then I watched it, and then a couple of nights later, the commercials for Moonraker came on, and I got to, that was my first theatrical Bond. And uh, so I love Roger Moore. I love The Man with the Golden Gun. I love The Spy Who Loved Me. And then when I went to see RoboCop, the trailer for Living Daylights played, and I was like, wait, Baron from Flash Gordon is Bond? <laughs> so unfortunately, I'm sorry. I love the two Timothy Dalton movies, and I do like- I do too. Yeah, I, I like Die Another Day, unfortunately, and I do like Quantum. Wow. I like all the ones people hate. You're a weird guy. Yes. yes. <laughs> I, like all the I, ones I like And I was telling Joe Vigo's old friend, he's like, why, why do you like Quantum? You know, everyone yells at me. I'm sorry. But Quantum like... has gone through a critical reevaluation. I don't think okay. your problem is Quantum. The fact that you're defending License to Kill. Oh, it's so good, Robert Davi. <laughs> but I would say, I saw... not to skip ahead, uh, yeah. I like Never Say Never Again. Yeah. So That's wow. what makes horse racing. Is yeah. That's yeah. right. <laughs> I saw hey, Robert. Felix gets ate by a shark in License to Kill. That movie's great. And yeah. the guy's eaten by a shark. And there's a guy named Sharky. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> worst perform, worst uh, performances in any Bond movie. License to Kill. Well, my favorite oh my is God. I got to see Robert Davi in concert in Vegas, and th- throughout his performance, singing one on his shoulder. No, he had <laughs> scenes from License to Kill playing in the background <laughs> throughout <laughs> his whole. In case you didn't know, he was. Yeah. Was he also he showing was just <laughs> James Bond literally swimming in cocaine? Yeah. <laughs> was he showing clips from Maniac Cop too? No, just oh. License to Kill while he was singing for 
Frank Sinatra songs. It was you could have sang awesome. the rap song for Maniac Cup, too. <laughs> that movie is literally Bond takes a holiday. It's like no, the vacations of James Bond. James Bond goes Hawaiian. <laughs> I dig him. Um, well, let's start talking about unmade Bond. Um, I guess, Mark, since you literally wrote the book on <laughs> James Bond here, um, or I don't know, Steve, which one of you guys wants to maybe walk us through the Thunderball? Well, I don't want to break format yeah. of the show. Steve usually does such a good job recapping everything with his research. His, well, you yes. jump in and if Mark we can miss, correct uh, him. Uh, yeah, yeah. Say. well, with, with this one, surprisingly, I couldn't find... A lot of, I, until after uh, Warhead, I have a lot of that. So I guess, you know, I guess we should start from Thunderball. And I mean, I, don't, I mean, to be honest. You know, I, it starts earlier than that. Because, yes. you know, there was the point where Charlie Feldman had the rights to Casino Royale before it became this bloated, disastrous comedy. They were developing with Ben Hecht a serious version of Casino Royale, mm-hmm. um, which would have been a real uh, spy thrill. And Hecht dies like the day after he turns in the script to Casino Royale, not a good omen. Of course, that <laughs> never got made. And then eventually, when they realized they couldn't get Connery, they couldn't get John, uh, John Barry, um, that uh, Saltzman and um, uh, Broccoli weren't going to make a deal with Feldman the way they did with McClory. They didn't want to keep outsourcing the thing. And Feldman also, uh, being an agent, you know, mm-hmm. wanted to take a lot of money. You know, he didn't want to just film underwater like McClory. He actually wanted a lot of money to give up his Casino Royale rights. Um, he he ended up having the success with What's New Pussycat, and that inspired him to go to the comedic route. But for a long time, Casino Royale was being developed as a straight up, uh, you know, espionage thriller. Oh, right on. And I and I heard too that the only reason why they they teamed up with McClory to do uh, McClory to do uh, Thunderball was that Casino Royale was going to come out, and they knew it was going to be a disaster, and they didn't want it like a second unofficial. Because I believe McClory tried to make Thunderball in 1964 to go up against. Goldfinger, and he went to Richard Burton to star. Well, let's Before start that. back further than that, because yeah. this is something that I don't know uh, exact details on, because your book came out uh, late enough that I was only able to read part of it leading to the podcast. <laughs> yeah. But so, Mark, well, you were too busy uh, counting your money uh, for yeah. Paramount. Oh, I don't, <laughs> I don't get any residuals from theatrical. Uh, I got to wait for the Blu-ray. But I was going to say, because um, I know that. To me, I find it fascinating that the first James Bond movie wasn't going to be based on any of the books. Well, can I can I chime <laughs> yeah. in because I know some of this. So, so the first uh, novel for for the for the non you know deep dive nerds, the first novel was Casino Royale. It was written. It was published in 1953, and and Fleming wrote one every year until 63, and that was and there were some short stories and uh, added to that and and collections of short stories. But throughout the late 50s, mid to late 50s, there were people making overtures to turning to turn James Bond into a into a movie character. And one of those was Moonraker was uh, I think Mark mentioned Moonraker was optioned. I think Live and Let Die was optioned. Um, And then I think it might have been Rank came to him about doing a television series. Was this Commander Jamaica? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the idea was it was going to be called Commander Jamaica. And the the I think this is in the book. And the idea was that uh, Bond would go to Jamaica and there would be this villain who's toppling rockets. And essentially it was the germ of Dr. No, which Fleming then went off and wrote as one of the novels um, because I guess he'd been hired as a hired gun, you know, come up with something with your own character. So presumably he and everyone else involved assumed that he owned that character and he could do whatever he wanted with, including the material he had written ostensibly for a TV series. 
So a couple of years later, um, Kevin McClory enters the picture, who is this sort of raconteur, d- deep-sea diver sportsman, I think more so than a filmmaker. But he hung out with John Huston. And, he and, was a, an assistant to producers. Was he? Yeah. I know he hung out with John Huston on Moby Dick. And, and Mike African Todd. Queen, he worked for Mike Todd out, for a while. Around the world in 80 days and whatnot. Yeah. And he wanted to make an underwater movie. That was his big thing, a widescreen, you know, VistaVision underwater movie. A treasure hunt flick. And he'd done this thing, The Boy and the Bridge, which I've never seen, which I guess he directed and co-wrote. But somehow he approached Fleming, and this was the beginning of the germ of Thunderball. Yeah, he approached Fleming through their mutual friend, um, God, what was his Ivor name? Ivor Bryce. Ivor Bryce, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and got the right, got the rights, and then they started developing together. Right. So what they were doing was they were developing, uh, as Josh said, an original James Bond adventure, which would involve lots of underwater stuff because that was uh, that that was what McClory was interested in. So, and then another writer came aboard at some point, um, uh, Jack Winningham, yeah. and there were a couple of others, Ernest Cuneo and whatnot. But but in, at the end of the day, there was a treatment that was the basically the movie that would become Thunderball, um, uh, owned by and written by all the three of these guys, Fleming, Winningham, and McClory. And that's where the kicker is, because then Fleming was like, oh, I don't like screenwriting anymore. (laughs) I'm going to go back to my crash pad, Goldeneye, in Jamaica, and I'm going to write a book, and I'm going to use this treatment as inspiration. He he basically retraced his steps, and it was a very, it was a much less litigious kind of, uh, showbiz yeah, at that yeah, time, yeah. so he went to Goldeneye and he, uh, and he wrote. For people who don't know, the movie Goldeneye is named after is named Ian after Thomas his ha- house because yeah. we ran out of books to name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the next one will be named after his pet cat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if he had a pet cat. Anyway, they, so, so he wrote the novel based on the treatment that he had written with these two other guys. So at some point, McClory realizes this and says, "Wait a minute, I co-own this." When it came out. <laughs> when he saw it in the bookstores. And there was no credit to them whatsoever. Wow. Yep. Yeah. And then there was the lawsuit. Uh, and all of this is happening before Dr. No the movie came out, right? Yeah. This is the Thunderball yeah. was supposed to be the very first feature, but the from tr- my understanding, they had a limited budget and they couldn't afford what Thunderball was well, going to be. Well, it was right. partially that, but it was also that there was since there was some litigation about it. Um, but yeah, they had originally Richard Maybaum had started was originally going to develop Thunderball. But given that United Artists only gave them like one point two million dollars, they realized yeah it was untenable to do Thunderball on that budget. So they went with Doctor No, which was a a smaller you know let, there was less scope. Yeah, and I, I also heard that the boy in the bridge was such a disaster. That's why. Another reason why he didn't want to work with Kevin McClory. Well, McClory wanted to direct it. And, you know, Fleming was so desperate. You know, it's not different than now. You know, he wasn't making a lot on the books, although he was a bon vivant. He came from Mm -hmm. money, but he had a certain lifestyle to uphold. And he wanted to do a movie deal. That's why Mm -hmm. he was doing deals with everyone in town. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ultimately the reason Saltzman was able to do a deal after he'd been burned so many times was he paid him, you know, pretty decent money for the time. And it was a short option period. Mm -hmm. So he was willing to, to make the deal you know, because he just really wanted, you know, the prestige and the money of a movie deal. And, you know, they've been so, so, fr- he was so frustrated and so stymied from everything that had gone off the rails previously that, uh, but, you know, he gave Saltzman a very short window to sell it. And that's why Saltzman eventually had a, you know, sort of partner up with Broccoli because he was about to lose the option. Mm-hmm. And the thing that Cubby had was a deal with Columbia which ended up not happening. Mike Frankovich sort of passed on it, um, but he was able to set it up at United Artists just under the wire. 
But back to pre-Broccoli Saltzman, I found this really interesting, is when they were sort of expanding the, the, the Thunderbolt treat, what would become the Thunderbolt treatment, uh, they, uh, they decided that they didn't want the villains to be, you know, communist Russia. They didn't want the villains to be the mafia, mm-hmm. which, which were, those were generally the bad guys in the Fleming novels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Fleming came up with this idea of this kind of insidious org- organization called Spectre and put that into the Thunderbolt novel. Well, now, when McClory comes up with his lawsuit, he says, well, wait a minute. Everything in this book is stuff that we came up with for the, for the, mo- for the potential movie. So I co-owned that stuff, too. The problem is they'd already used Spectre in th- th- three Dr. of the Bond no, films. And in From and Russia's Russia Love. Love. And yeah. mentioned, I think, in Goldfinger. Mm. So suddenly something that's tied to the, the, to the real series is something that, that McClory has claim over. And, and I, there's a writer's room there, right? Because there were those three writers, so there's a chance that maybe somebody else did come up with Spectre besides they, Fleming. They ultimately decided that Fleming probably did, but that doesn't mean that, that McClory didn't claim ownership over because it was in the treatment with his name on it. Yeah, yeah and I think McClory also kind of helped shape the cinematic bond compared to the literature bond mm. as well. Mm. And I think that was like one of his main Well, he was like, kind gripes. of a Bondian character himself. That's true. You know, um, he, 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 he threw around a lot of money. He was he globetrotted. He spent a lot of time in Jamaica. He was a sportsman. You know, I, a lot of people attribute, obviously, the real James Bond, in a sense, was Terrence Young, the director. But, you know, in a lot of ways, McClory had certainly a lot more so than Broccoli and Saltzman, who were more, you know, typical Hollywood producers. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm just saying mm-hmm. in terms of that Bondian, you know, kind of mystique, I mean, McClory had that, which isn't to give credence to all the things he claimed his whole life. He was an avid scuba diver, spent a lot of his time in the Bahamas. And he had the vision for the underwater photography. Oh, he sure did. I mean, when Thunderball came out, they had never taken a widescreen Panavision camera and put it underwater. And that's all he ever wanted to do. So when we talk about Rico Browning... Uh, directing mm-hmm. the underwater scenes. Who played the creature from Lo- the Black Lagoon? Creature from the Black Lagoon, the second best Gilman in uh, <laughs> the cinematic <laughs> universe. Um, and he also directed underwater scenes for Flipper and Sea Hunt. So his team comes through from Florida. And for the very first time, they're taking wide scope cameras and they're putting them underwater. And you're looking at about 25, 30% of the movie all being underwater. We've never seen it so long. That's why they're so long these sequences it's like 2001 when you're revealing the spaceship for the very first time sometimes you just need to let it go to a ballet and anybody who you know understands filmmaking and certainly filmmaking in the 60s you know who's not like who's watching who's seen thunderball in a theater and not on just on tv is blown away by those incredible sequences. You know, it's a lot like that, you know, people say with Star Trek, the motion picture, it's the motionless picture. You know, I've only seen it on, like, you know, their phones, right? Yeah. And uh, it's kind of that way with Thunderball where, you know, people say, oh, it's so slow, it's so lethargic. But Thunderball's a great movie. Thunderbolt's great, and you know the best. Uh, you know, some would, some would argue the best. And, I mean, there's so much to love in that movie, and you know that was the first, you know, b- as they called it, Bond Buster. It's huge. It's expensive. It was the first movie to ever play 24 hours a day. You know, because that's the kind of demand there was for the movie. So it was in theaters. You know, David Picker and United Artists put in theaters, in literally running around the, the clock. Uh, and line, there were lines around the corner for it. I mean, it was an, a huge event. People don't understand. You know, now a Bond movie comes out and people are excited and they watch the trailer on YouTube. But 
it was a huge event every time a Bond movie came out in the middle to you know late sixties. Well, and p- pound for pound, I think the most successful, if, you know, if if you account for inflation and all that, pound for pound, the most successful Bond movie of all time. Yeah, you can't have the British invasion without Bond mm-hmm. along with the Beatles yep. because this was happening at the exact same time. And yeah. am I correct in my memory that? In part, the reason because McClory ended up with kind of an awesome deal on Thunderball, where he gets like producer credit over Broccoli and Salsman, but that was in part because they basically just had to agree to whatever he wanted because they knew, like, they had this great wave they well, were riding, and he was just going to go off and make yes, another Bond movie. Yeah, they had movie. this great, you know. And the problem is Feldman had his rights, so they said maybe we can survive one competing movie, but we can't survive two. two. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to co-op McClory, so they had to actually take executive producer credit, yeah. and they gave him producer credit. He was the only creative producer, which became, I think, trouble for Terrence Young. Uh, because McClory had his hands in the underwater stuff the entire time. And I think it's what... Uh, he apparently doesn't like the movie all too much. Yeah, it's his least favorite of the three he directed. And right? that makes a lot of sense if he's going around shooting all the spy stuff, all the dry stuff, and McClory is over in the Bahamas <laughs> the entire time shooting all the underwater stuff. That will be his least favorite thing. Yeah. Well, And then also to, to rewind back to, to what Altman was saying about they were – Fleming was desperate. He also reached out to Hitchcock in the late 50s as well to direct. Oh, that was their original choice to direct was uh, Alfred Hitchcock. But there are a couple of different competing theories about why. Some say, oh, well, he would have only done one. He didn't want to do a series. But, you know, North by Northwest was his Bond movie. It was a huge Mm -hmm. influence on the Bond (laughs) movies. So it's like, why would he do Bond? Um, I don't think he ever was very serious about doing it, mm-hmm. um, but they had talked to Hitchcock about it, and uh, you know, on, on on its face, it seemed like something he might be interested in, but it never was very serious. Mm-hmm. You know, it never How got very far. Out? He's afraid of sex. How would he ever <laughs> shoot James? Well, Hitchcock. Very, <laughs> yeah. Hitchcock but could you see Grace Kelly? <laughs> Grace Kelly is a Bond girl. <laughs> and, uh, Jimmy Stewart is Bond. Probably. Well, that, he was thinking about <laughs> yeah. it. You know, and I mean, the original choices were like as ridiculous as Noel Coward and Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart. I mean, I mean, just crazy, crazy choices. I mean, the history of the men who were not Bond is insane. Burt Reynolds, well, you know, Cary wanted Richard Burton, right? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and then, like I was saying, like in '64, before they made their Thunderball, he tried to make Thunderball to go up against Goldfinger and went to Richard Burton, which is something he's going to keep doing in the future. It's going up. The spy who came in from the cold, came, yeah. you know, but he never came into the bond. But yeah, and part of the deal that McClory and and um, uh, and Saltzman made with him was that the rights to Thunderball would uh, would revert back to McClory in ten years, yep. and they did. Yep, and I guess that's where we and then we begin. cut to ten years later, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we get into the attempts of Warhead, Warhead Eight, James Bond <laughs> on the Secret Service, all the different things. Yeah, they were calling this attempt. Well, the um, f- first one looks like, as you were saying, was James Bond at the Secret Service, and it's, the draft is uh, dated November 11th, 1976. Well, and also, I have this written down in my notes. Uh, am I correct that their original version, the original James Bond movie script that mm-hmm. became Thunderball mm-hmm. the novel was going to be called Longitude 78 yes. West? Okay. I didn't know that. Yep. Sometimes my notes suck in that I have a thing written down and I don't explain <laughs> what the thing is. you see that on the marquee? Could you see that 18-year-old guy trying to put the letters up on the marquee? Longitude. Can I have a ticket for longitude four, five, yeah. three? 
Oh, my God. It's crazy. But, you know, it's so interesting how incestuous it was because, you know, not only did you have Ernie Cuneo, who was friends with, you know, Broccoli and, and Fleming and, and, and McClory, but then you had, um, you know, by the time you get Len Dayton, who had actually done a draft of From mm-hmm. Russia with Love who and, and then did, you know, was optioned uh, the uh, Harry Palmer's books to um, Saltzman for very who made successful, them. who made, you know, them. Uh, then he ends up writing... You know, these early drafts for McClory. I mean, and he was friends with McClory. And there's so much crossover between both camps. As, 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 and even when you get to later on, Octopussy, Never Say Never Again, a lot of people that knew each other and a lot of weird relationships and crossover between the, the films, it's, it's kind of crazy. Well, and we'll also see, talking about the screenplay, that a lot of it ends up in The Spy Who Loved Me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That is Thunderball with Roger Moore. Uh, the uh, little nerd note: I'm a huge fan, fan of Paul Dane, who wrote Goldfinger and also the uh, the Planet of the Apes sequels. Um, he was actually approached to write Thunderball and passed on the opportunity, and then two or three years later wrote Goldfinger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, well, let's talk. About, let's start getting into this uh, leading leading up to the movie not happening, the movie Warhead. But it started out as James Bond on the Secret Service. And one thing that I think was interesting about this is that McClory approached, as you noted, Len Dayton, but then, more importantly, approached Sean Connery to co-write it as a trio. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what can you tell us about <laughs> that? Well, I mean, wasn't that so smart? It's like, you know, it's sort of like when we approach Shatner for Free Enterprise, you don't tell him how much you like him in Star Trek. You tell him what a brilliant comedian he is, right? <laughs> how you liked him on Sarah Life. So you want Sean Connery to be in your James Bond movie. What do you do? We want your insight as a writer, John. Your one-liners you are so quippy. Yeah, that's what they said, because you brought so much to it. You know, some of those quips and things that weren't in the script, it was all you. You have so, insight into this character that no yeah, one else has. Yeah, yeah. and so they, they, they recruit Sean Connery. You know, but you know Sean Connery's favorite Bond script was Diamonds Are Forever. So sometimes <laughs> actors are not the best judge. I mean, look at you know uh, Patrick Stewart and Picard. It's like uh, you know I have a vision. This is how I always pictured the character. It's like sometimes there's a reason writers are the writers and actors are the actors. <laughs> and I will say uh, the quips in this script are not up to normal. Mm-mm. Bond standards. Uh, well, well, even even normal Bond standards fluctuate wildly. That's true. <laughs> but I'm just saying, for a guy who is ostensibly brought on because he's so funny and captures the Bond sense of yeah, humor, no. quips, not great in this one. <laughs> um, well, Steve, do you have anything to add before we start kind of getting into the Well, because it really know, was script? the Austin Powers film that was never made, right? Well, and that's what I'm going to say. Much, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just immediate reactions from people, but I will say I think... Probably you guys all hate it. I think Steve and I kind of like it. And again, my horrible notes. <laughs> I got this quote from your book that sums up how I feel about it. I don't remember who said it. Is they described the script as stupid but incredible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't remember who said it either. But, but that, that sums very, it up. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's kind of Austin. It has before. sharks with nuclear weapons strapped, yeah, it strapped uh, to them. We'll, we'll get there. We'll yeah, get okay. there. Well, yeah, also, just, without jumping ahead in the story. <laughs> also pitched as Star Wars underwater. Yeah. yeah. You, you uh, without jumping ahead to story details. I'm just curious, your three just general reactions to the script. Um, the most recent one that I read was Warhead, but assuming that they're pretty identical, I was uh, shocked to see that it looked to be a shooting draft because all the scenes were yeah, numbered scenes and everything, numbered. it was ready to go. It felt more like a first draft. Mm-hmm. Um, and just uh, any listeners out there who maybe know some de- details about this, the script I feel is better known as Warhead. 
not James Bond of the Secret Service, but they are identical down to the dialogue and scenes. Warhead is like 10 pages shorter, so it's missing some scenes, and really the only notable difference, which doesn't affect the story, is in James Bond and the Secret Service, it's very much like Thunderball, where Largo is kind of our, like, face villain and then Blofeld is just kind of like running the show from a distance and in Warhead there's no Largo okay. so it's he, just Blofeld it, it, with a, a spoiler free if let's let's let, this is the best way to describe this if this script was put out on the internet today as the next James Bond movie right if it was so that you know in the world of the internet all of a sudden Warhead is out there you know I just got a scoop uh, the Warhead you know Robert Burnett puts it out on the internet right so uh, <laughs> so and all of a sudden it's circulating no one would believe it's real. Everyone would say, there's no way. This is some fan wrote this. There's nothing legitimate uh, can about I, can it. Can I take Fake a step news. further? Uh, uh, not, a, not a fan, uh, 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 an eight-year-old fan. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of stuff in this script that I just can't believe adults wrote. I mean, there's two... There's two um, there's Operation Hammerhead, and then after they've completed Operation Hammerhead, there's Operation... Uh, so, uh, sub steel or sub <laughs> no no uh, uh, heist sub heist something like that. So first of all, you have two operations. You, one can probably be an umbrella for both of them, but it's sort of like these little kids going, oh, and then they have to steal the nuclear warheads. So that's going to be <laughs> Operation, you know, nuke steel. It really sounds like children are writing the script sometimes. Well, I mean, just to, so the cold open of this is a plane carrying the Secretary General of the United Nations is flying through the Bermuda Triangle. Okay, let me just say, before you get to Bermuda, okay, this is the mid-1970s. For some unknown reason, the entire world was obsessed with two things, Bigfoot and the Bermuda, the Bermuda Triangle. Triangle. There was like these Eric Von Donneken books, Chariots of the Gods. And Russia. Yeah, and Russia, but, but that was real. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this Bermuda Triangle thing, it was like these planes disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle, and like people just were fascinated by the Bermuda Triangle, and it makes it way into this ridiculous... Remember, also, this, this draft was written in 1976. Jaws had come out the year before. Mm, there are more sharks. sharks. There are more yes. references to sharks, yeah. actual That's sharks, mechanical sharks, mm-hmm. than in any movie ever conceived. Yeah, yeah, in, it's Jaws yeah. underwater. Oh, wait. <laughs> no, but you're, you're so right about the Bigfoot and Bermuda Triangle. There was that... Crazy documentary about the Bermuda Triangle Sun too in the seventies. Yeah, yeah, so that's how I learned of it, and so yeah. But anyway. yeah, plane through the Bermuda Triangle. Secretary General of the United Nation. Uh, it is the plane is like made to fail and crash by uh, Largo for, for. So basically, this is the same, ostensibly as Thunderball in a lot of. Basic plot point. So Largo, if people remember, is the guy with the eye patch from <laughs> Instead Thunderball. of Luciana Paluzzi, you have the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. <laughs> I'll stick with Luciana Paluzzi. Well, they even show you're coming up to all the relics in the Bermuda Triangle. Well, I'm giving you that. So it's Largo <laughs> oh, and his sequence. sidekick, yeah. Mazlov, who's like a scientist, bring down the plane using an underwater laser. And then sort of 20,000 leagues under the sea, this giant floating city ship called the Arcos, um like eats the plane and then our opening credit sequence as described here I guess because this was going to not be an official bond wasn't going to have the sexy 
lady the silhouettes and guns. The, uh, so it's, yeah. the titles are described in the script as series of shots, main titles. During the titles, we see the broken seaplane carried by the structure of Arcos sinking through the vast watery pastures of the Sargasso Sea, down into the colder, deeper ocean layers, past the graveyards of previous victims of the Bermuda Triangle, <laughs> Flight 19, the Star Tiger, as the Arcos and its prey reach the bottom of the LG floats... The LG floats up, uh, revealing fields of stacked gold at the bottom of the sea, diamonds, uh, manganese nodules, etc. Before the slime settles, we we have seen enough to realize that this is a vast undersea empire. That's all McClory. Like, he is living his 12-year-old dream here. He likes... Uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, he likes treasure hunts, he likes heist capers, and he's putting it all in this the scene. The only thing that's missing is, remember how Robert Evans wanted to play the other Jake in the two Jakes? And the only thing that's missing is McClory saying, I should play the yes. of the Undersea it's, Kingdom. Exactly. <laughs> you know? When I read that sequence, I loved it. <laughs> I, I ate it up You're with a weird, knife and fork. I know. Stupid but incredible. Yes. <laughs> loved it. Um, uh, and then it's the stuff from the uh, that I guess bears more resemblance in some ways. Or I guess it's this Thunderball because Never Say Never Again is where we actually see Bond being sent to the shrublands by M. Where much like in Thunderball, we just kind of begin yeah. with Bond there. And this, uh, he's like on the beach. Um, I'm forgetting what her name with is. With the sunburn. Just, with the nurse. Loves it. Yeah, loves she it. Loves that, it. That we has the great. <laughs> Mona you know, loves it. Yeah. You know, what's your name? Austin just Powers. Loves right? it. She does. You know <laughs> that, that kind of stuff. Uh, and really, my my one as much as I love the dumbness of this script, my one real complaint is that James Bond doesn't do anything James Bondy until like almost page forty. Your complaint wasn't the jacuzzi. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it also violates the, the the essential formula of the Bond canon, which is that he, he's essentially portrayed as a detective in these stories, mm. in which he follows breadcrumbs to figure out what the bad guys are doing. This script opens with yeah. 20 pages of the bad guy telling us what he's going to do. Oh, yeah. It's like Batman, 66. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the thing about, you know, Sean Connery, I think why he was such a great Bond was because, and you've said this, he's, he's credible. You believe if he's in a fist fight that he can knock out the guy he's fighting. You believe, he you know. He can win at Baccarat. You know, he can win at Baccarat. He looks, you know, great he's in his He's dangerous. Suit, and he, he's da- he's dangerous, you know. And unlike all, you know, uh, regards to uh, Timothy Dalton, the most dangerous Bond ever was Sean Connery, even <laughs> though that was the tagline for Dalton. But, you know, why is he suddenly finding himself in a Roger Moore Bond movie? You know, and that's what this is. You know, this is like a Roger Moore Bond movie. And I love Roger Moore Bond, uh, Roger Moore Bond movies, but if you have Sean Connery, you don't want to see him. I mean, Diamonds Are Forever sort of proves that, right? So it's like you want to see him in Thunderball or From Russia With Love or Goldfinger, but, you know, they, they, it has to be grounded. And, you know, there has to be a little edge to it. And this isn't grounded at all. I mean, mm-hmm. in Undersea City, it's like Atlantis, you know? But not Atlantis like Inspire Love Me, like literally Atlantis. <laughs> and um, and then you have, uh, you know, him running around just doing all this goofy stuff and sharks with freaking nuclear <laughs> missiles on them. And uh, just, oh, God. But you're talking about, like... Mid seventies, Connery, like Zardoz, Connery. He's so badass, <laughs> fighting mechanical sharks. I'm in. Well, it's just funny that he's involved in the writing of the script. Because again, for 
like the first third of he's the script. He's not writing himself a good role. He's not doing it. He's <laughs> just kind of sitting around sexually harassing. Yeah, Justine a, loves exactly it. Exactly right. And, uh, and, who, and, and every woman who comes along yeah. is sexually yeah. harassed. But is it because he never wants to play Bond again? He figures, you know, here I am again. <laughs> I'll take the paycheck. And then I never have to do another Bond Strange. movie That's after this. so com- interesting, though, because literally all he does is these sexual innuendos and, and, and having sex with these girls. Right. He does, and he does some swimming. But he doesn't have to do anything rigorous. He doesn't have to do anything that would be annoying as an actor. He almost gets killed by a jacuzzi in, like, the first yeah, okay. 15 so pages. What they're referring to there for the listeners is uh, we meet, again, two characters from Thunderball, Never Seen Ever Again, named yeah. kind of there's Hellinger, who is, like, the guy that Spectre is going to replace. Um, and never say never again. They, I guess they don't really replace him. They're just like blackmailing him using like drugs or something. And Thunderball, they and the same in this. They give a guy plastic surgery. Yeah, to it's look Angelo exactly and Duvall like from Thunderball. Yeah, and we meet Doctor Fatima Blush, uh, who played is, by Barbara Carrera. Never say never again. And uh, brilliantly, yeah, she's great. Great. By the way, that is a, a name that that Fleming created. Mm-hmm. For the original treatment that uh, McClory Kept. hung on to, awesome. but it doesn't appear in any of the other. And she's pretending to be Hellinger's nurse, uh, but is really setting him up for this. And here's a here's an example of the subpar quips in this. When Justine Lovitz is, there's like the scene where she's just like explaining to Bond while they're sitting on the beach, and he's trying to get her to rub suntan lotion like on his junk, <laughs> basically. Um, she's pointing out the characters, and when she points to Dr. Fatima Blush, she's like, she's a good swimmer. She nearly got it. She nearly got into the Olympics team last year. And Bond's quip is she easily she could easily win a gold medal in the physical Olympics. And I'm just like, come what? on. Does that even guys, it, goes, it goes from Bond quips to frat boy quips. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's Star Wars meets Porky's. <laughs> Underwater. We also introduce the idea that there's this cancer research island that we can see off the coast where sort of like Deep Blue Sea, they're studying sharks. Or like sharks. Die Another Day. Yeah. Uh, they're studying <laughs> sharks uh, is the cover, and they call it Shark Island. That goes Cleverly. to Fred's point where it's like, okay, so there's this island. There's a lot of sharks that hang out around there. What should we call it? Shark Island. <laughs> One of the great things about Fleming was he came up with great names for characters and great names for places. Yeah. Shark Island is not. Yeah, Crab Key. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 totally. Uh, and then Golden in this group eye. we have Largo and Warhead. It's Blofeld, but we follow them, and which I guess would have been a visually interesting sequence is that he goes into the like a cliff face opens up and he gets in a glass elevator that goes That's like Jerry Anderson all quality. the way down mm-hmm. through the ocean to the Arcos at the bottom of the sea. Well, that'd really be great with the Michelle Legrand score. <laughs> we meet his henchman, Bamba, who in this is a giant African guy, and Warhead, his name is Genghis, Genghis and yeah. he's a giant Asian guy. Uh, and then we'll maybe leave as our so cliff- socially uh, socio-appropriate names. Yeah, and we'll leave as the cliffhanger <laughs> like here, that. where we end part one before picking up uh, next time with part two. But we'll leave you on the cliffhanger of Maslov introducing to Largo slash Blofeld that he is building robot sharks. Mm-hmm. We don't know why yet because we've seen they have a lot of real sharks. Just remind the audience, this is the unmade James Bond episode. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't Super Mario Brothers. This isn't like, you know, one of their other horror episodes. This is James Bond. I mean, it is a horror, but um, God, well, wow, that is a good cliffhanger. How could somebody not come back for the next robot episode? Sharks. Uh, yes. Thank you, heaven. Mark, Henry, Fred, for joining us. We'll see you next time. Uh, do you guys want to give where people can find you on social medias? Uh, you can't. 
Okay. <laughs> uh, I always said Fred was a smart man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Fred Decker has a great uh, Facebook page that you can like. Oh, that's true. I do. <laughs> um, you can find me at H Dilla. H D I L L A. Twitter, Instagram, right. anything with an at. I'm at uh, Mark A. Altman on Twitter and uh, Instagram, and uh, the new book is Nobody Does It Better. You can buy the hardcover, the digital version, or the audio book wherever books are sold. All right, guys. Well, uh, for those listening, you can also find Steve and I on the social medias where we like to post behind the scenes, uh, like concept art and that kind of stuff for the projects we're talking about. You can yeah. find us at Best Movies Never Made on Instagram and at Never Made Film on Twitter. And if you're a fan of the podcast, you should also check out Electric Surge's other podcasts, like the 430 Movie, which is on it every Friday, and Inglorious Trexperts, which is the only podcast for Star Trek fans with a life, which is available every Saturday where you listen to podcasts. Also, a special thanks to Bill Ritter and everyone here at Electric Surge Network, including our producers, Mr. Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman. And so, until next time, this is... Stephen Scarlett. And I am Josh Miller saying we won't see you at the movies. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.